0: Coming on the Agony Column podcast, author Charlene Harris has some unusual ideas about American citizenship.
1: I thought vampires would have to be legally recognized citizens of the United States.
0: But she holds some truths to be self-evident.
1: Of course, they get taxed. You can tax the dead.
0: Death and Taxes, coming on the Agony Column podcast. You're listening to Rick Kleffel the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary 5 days a week at trashotron.com/agony.
1: Pam love dear Abby. Lots of vampires scrutinize the column daily. Their solution to some of the writer's problems would just make you scream. Literally. Pam had already advised me that I could only be imposed on if I permitted it, that I needed to be more selective in picking my friends. I was getting emotional health counseling from a vampire. I am, I said, keeping busy, that is. I'm working, I've still got my roommate from New Orleans, and I'm going to a wedding shower tomorrow. Not for Jason and Crystal, another couple. Pam had paused, her hand on the doorknob of Eric's office. She considered my statement, her brows drawn together. I am not remembering what a wedding shower is, though I've heard of it, she said. She brightened. They'll get married in a bathroom? No. I've heard the term before, surely. A woman wrote to Abby that she hadn't gotten a thank you note for a large shower gift. They get presents? You got it, I said. A shower is a party for someone who's about to get married. Sometimes the shower's for the couple and they're both there, but usually only the bride is the honoree and all the other people at the party are women. Everyone brings a gift. The theory is that this way the couple can start life with everything they need. We do the same thing when a couple's expecting a baby. Of course, then it's a baby shower. Baby showers, Pam repeated. She smiled in a chilly way. It was enough to put frost on your pumpkin seeing that up curve of the lips. I like the term, she said. She knocked on Eric's office door and then opened it. Eric, she said, maybe someday one of the waitresses will get pregnant, and then we can go to a baby shower. That would be something to see,
0: said Eric. Charlene Harris is the author of the Sookie Stackhouse Southern Vampire Mysteries. Excuse me. Let me start that again here. Uh, that's why we have all this fabulous software to make this all sound perfect. Charlene Harris is the author of the Sookie Stackhouse. Miss Charlene Harris <laughs> is laughing me at me even as we speak. <laughs> Charlene Harris is the author of the Sookie Stackhouse Southern Vampire Mysteries, including Dead Until Dark, Living Dead in Dallas, and Club Dead. She also writes the Aurora Tea Garden Mysteries, the Lily Bard Mysteries, and the Harper Connolly Mysteries. Her new novel is Altogether Dead. It's the latest Sookie Stackhouse Mystery. Welcome to the program.
1: Oh, thank you so much.
0: Good news. This is now a number six bestseller on the New York Times list.
1: Yes, that's just very, very exciting.
0: I can imagine so. Tell us a little bit about the setup of these Sookie Stackhouse mysteries. When the first novel came out, Mm -hmm. did you understand the full depth of the world you were creating in that first novel?
1: I didn't understand that other people would enjoy it so much.
0: When you created the world of that novel, we had Sookie Stackhouse. She's a waitress. She's a telepath. And you knew that there were going to be vampires involved. Yes. Did you understand the rest of the implications of that? As the series has grown, we've met more and more critters.
1: Yeah. Uh, No, I didn't really understand what I was doing to start out with. I was writing a kitchen sink book. It had everything in it I'd always wanted to write about. And uh, my career as a conventional mystery novelist was not on the skids, but not proceeding. I was looking at 50, I won't tell you how closely. And I decided it was time to shake things up, to do what I'd always wanted to do. So I came up with the character of Sookie, and then her world just began to unfold around me.
0: Tell us a little bit about the reaction you got when you first created this book and handed it over to your editor, what did they say, the, the people who were look, looking at your mysteries? They knew you as a mystery writer, cozy oh, mysteries. Oh,
1: I know. My agent didn't even like the book. It got turned down steadily for two years, two years. Really? And and it's now in its 17th printing, so I'm feeling pretty neener, neener, neener about that, I can tell you. Uh, but it got turned down over and over. The letters were so... Uncomplimentary that my agent wouldn't even forward them to me, but I still had faith in the book, and then John Morgan at ACE took it.
0: Now he wasn't a, a mystery editor, was he?
1: No, he was a science fiction editor. He uh, was not in mysteries at all, and in fact, now he works for DC comics. <laughs> but then he was working for ACE, and he he saw the book, he understood the book which not everybody really gets, and he really loved it. So that started my career with Ace, and then, you know, when they saw how the first one did, it did, you know, well. Uh, They came back and signed me for a few more, and then after one more of those, they came back and signed me for some more, and it just kind of snowballed.
0: One of the things that, that interests me about these books is the way that you've created a world where things that are, Fairly remarkable and unbelievable seem quite believable, and, and you treat them as everyday things. Tell us a little bit about how, how you how you approached that to to create, come up with that feel.
1: I decided that it would have to be very matter of fact, like Dinotopia treats the existence of dinosaurs as as sentient beings. Uh, I thought vampires would have to be legally recognized citizens of the United States, though they're not completely citizens. There's still a lot of pending legislation about whether they can inherit from themselves whether they can marry humans. Of course they get taxed, you can tax the dead.
0: Well, and that's no surprise. No, no, no surprises
1: there. But they have to shop for clothes just like anybody else. They have to uh, take their dry cleaning in just like everybody else. They have to go they have to find a way to do their banking since they're not daytime people, just like any other nocturnal person.
0: One thing that interests me too is that you've got vampires these are come straight out of the horror genre, and they're typically associated with books that are either disturbing, scary, or grotesquely violent over mm-hmm. the top. Mm-hmm. Yours are none of these things, and I really wouldn't even call these novels at all horror novels they don't they're not meant to scare you in any way, shape, or form i mean there's a little there's some free songs, but the overall thrust isn't to to make you frightened to go no. out into the night.
1: No. But they are kind of
0: bloody. They're a little bit bloody. But not too bad. I mean, it's it's more than a teacup, but it's less than a bucket. So, when you approached Ace, did they want horror novels? And, and did people see these as horror novels when they came out?
1: No, they didn't. Uh they marketed them as Science fiction, uh, hoping that, you know, Laurel K. Hamilton had had just taken off pretty well. By the time my book got accepted, when I wrote it, she was not as well known. But by the time I finally got somebody to publish the book, uh, she she had really taken off. And she kind of pulled the curtain aside, and then I passed through after her. And we seem to have, you know, uh, quite a few people are, are coming through now. And it, uh, they're what's called crossover books. Uh, or urban, some people call them urban fantasy. Though I really write rural fantasy. Obviously, uh,
0: tell us a little bit about this this uh, genre of urban slash rural fantasy. What what distinguishes it? I mean, I hear fantasy. I think Lord of the Rings and elves and worlds you've never met. Not like vampires with lawyers.
1: But this is this <laughs> is like uh, taking the world as we know it and inserting the incredible into it not uh, not starting with an incredible world that we've never seen as Tolkien did. This is starting off with our world and just changing the angle of it just a little bit to where everything's just a bit off. I,
0: and I think that's one of the things that makes these books so successful as, as humorous satires. There's a level of satire in these books. There is. It, it, it's constant and it's hysterical. It, it, tell us a little bit about how you design did you design these books as satires
1: i design them as um maybe parables um they there is there's an agenda i have an agenda whether you get it or not is up to you i mean if you don't that's okay they're fun they're They're, a lot of fun
0: they're definitely fun. Uh,
1: but i do have an agenda
0: well tell us about your agenda
1: you know I was scared you were going to ask me that um I really hate to talk about my agenda, but obviously, I'm trying to say something about the way we treat minorities. This is using vampires of course as a as a metaphor for homosexuality
0: and that that comes that does come across in in a in a straightforward but not heavy handed way that's that's
1: what I hate to preach it people
0: one of the things that's interesting in these books is the setup of the vampires you have different it allows you access to all sorts of different types of humor. so there's like the humor of uh, the vampires once you insert them into our culture all of a sudden you get our culture's take on vampires. so tell us a little bit of some of that humor which is which is out there all all over the place in these books
1: and you also get the vampires take. On our culture, oh yes, which can be just as much fun to me. In our culture, in our, the way our culture looks at vampires, they're definitely second-class citizens, if they are citizens at all. In in my world, the vampires of some countries were just annihilated when they announced that they they existed. Only the the sale of a new Japanese synthetic blood has allowed vampires to orchestrate. They're coming out of the coffin, so to speak. And in some countries, it was a disastrous move. Most of the South American states, for example, they were just wiped out. But in some other countries, they were cautiously accorded a citizenship and cautiously accorded certain rights.
0: Now, one of the things that's interesting here is that vampires, though they're not tolerated very well, by humans, that they're frowned upon in many ways, and, and we see that a lot in this latest novel. They themselves are very tolerant, and one of the things that we have in this novel is is a gay vampire marriage.
1: That's right. Well, I figured <laughs> if, you ha- if you get hundreds of years to experiment, of course, this is why uh, so many women enjoy reading vampire books, because you have to think I get asked this question all the time, so I thought about it. Uh, you have to think that if uh, if they've had hundreds of years to practice lovemaking, that they should be pretty darn good at it by the time they get to you, which makes you know makes it very interesting. And of course, no venereal diseases, no pregnancy. Every woman's fantasy, right?
0: It, great sex with no consequences.
1: Great sex with no consequences. That's what makes vampires so attractive. <laughs> but also that that's given them hundreds of years to experiment with no moral um opprobrium attached.
0: So they're willing to do anything, and they can do anything. Yeah. One of the things that's interesting, too, is that you get a lot of uh, what passes for humor among vampires is itself humorous from a human perspective, but also it's kind of scary, too. It is very, very scary. <laughs> Tell us how you create that effect. It's a dissonant effect.
1: Well, they, vampires look like humans, but they're not. They're made of something completely different.
0: Do we at, know what that is yet? Are we? We don't know what it is. No, at this we don't point know what series. it is.
1: But they're they're not human anymore. And after a few years, they've detached themselves emotionally from from the experience of being human. They don't really remember it too well, and that leads them to look at at many facets of human life with a kind of, uh, again detached wonder and and. Uh, and they marvel at it as as being so peculiar and so very human. They've lost the ability to to relate to that, and that they think it's it's humans are pretty amusing,
0: and, and they all and and tasty,
1: and tasty <laughs> and tasty and cute too.
0: <laughs> One of the lines you have in in your new book is where uh, Suki says that most humans don't stab women, and most humans don't enjoy it either.
1: Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. She's she's caught straddling both worlds.
0: She's between worlds, and that puts her in, in some
1: a very uncomfortable situation. Very uncomfortable. Sometimes. Sometimes it's funny.
0: Tell us a little bit about all the other critters that have come out now. Have did the vampires come out before the first book?
1: Yes, they had been out for like four years okay. by the time I wrote the first book.
0: Okay. So one of the things that's interesting here is that you're creating a, a kind of an alternate present. We, we read a lot yes. of alternate history Our, is, a, is a kind of a popular mm-hmm. genre. Mm-hmm. But you're working in a really interesting genre that, of alternate present. And, and that allows you to create some interesting uh, humorous effects as well.
1: I've always kind of lived in an alternate present. Uh, I remember going to uh, the opera in in St. Louis with my mother-in-law, the outdoor opera that they have there at the Muni. And we were waiting for, you have to wait for the sun to go down for them to start the opera, obviously, because it's outdoors. And I thought, well, this is boring. Wouldn't it be more interesting if a pack of werewolves came out and tore across the stage and into the audience? And I often think about things like that, which probably, you know, if I voiced them would disturb the people around me very much. Uh, But I have to keep myself entertained, and boredom is my big enemy. So I have have a really rich inner life.
0: I I imagine so. Yeah, this isn't the kind of thing you want to talk about while you're sitting in the opera. Especially if you're a mom. (laughs) and, And I'm wondering, what part does being a mom and, and, you know you've got three kids I do and, and you know there are sweet and tender joy bundles of joy
1: well they're kind of big <laughs> sweet and tender bundles of joy now i've got a 23 year old son who repairs computers a 19 year old son in the army your prayers are happily considered and a 16 year old daughter at home
0: so uh, how does this play into the sense of humor that you evoke out of these books and into the darkness of the vampire that's at the, kind of at the core of them.
1: You know, children don't like to see their mother as creepy, um, but they're getting the picture on me now. And, you know, they we have a really wonderful relationship, or at least I, th- I think I do, <laughs> with my children. But I never was like everybody else's mom. And I never will be. And they, they've just kind of dealt with that in a real flexible way, which I really appreciate.
0: Well, Tell us a little bit about how you started to write. When did, when did you, what made you take up uh, the pen, word processor, or whatever it was at the time?
1: When I could hold a pencil. When I learned how to spell, I started writing. This was all I ever wanted to do in my whole life. And I'm so incredibly lucky that this is what I get to do every day.
0: And so tell us a little bit about, did you wrote in school?
1: I wrote in school. I wrote uh, really bad poems about ghosts. I wrote uh, essays about dinosaurs, really popular with me, dinosaurs and ghosts. And uh, then I, when I got into college, I still wrote. I wrote some one-act plays. Then uh, my, my first marriage, I was the wage earner during that marriage and uh, didn't write. But when I married my current husband whom I've been married to for 28 years, I'd like to point out. He told me for my wedding present that if I wanted to stay home and write, that would be great.
0: And that's when you began your first novel?
1: That's when I began my first novel, and I sold it the next year.
0: Wow, that's a pretty incredible success story.
1: You may throw tomatoes if you wish.
0: (laughs) You started out writing cozy mysteries, Mm -hmm. essentially
1: because that was what I was reading then and mm-hmm. I, I knew I could do them. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought, okay, this is within my grasp. I can't write the great American novel unless the great American novel has vampires in it. But I can write I can write a cozy mystery. This is something I can do and I know it. So I wrote two standalones and then I started a series about a Georgia librarian and there again they were a little for a while they nobody would nobody took them because they had some awful stuff in them. They were really cozy, but then I just couldn't suppress the, you know, my tendency to just throw, a, throw everyone a left hook. And, and here would come this horrible scene, and they would go, but this isn't cozy, and it's funny, too. Why are you doing that? And I thought, oh, well. But I did sell that series about the librarian, and then uh, that didn't satisfy my noir side, so I wrote a book about a house cleaner named Lily Bard who had a terrible, terrible background. Traumatic background. Tell Uh, us a
0: little bit about this character in in the background.
1: About Lily? Yeah. Uh, Lily uh, was abducted and raped at gunpoint, uh, not just in one incident, but she was kept captive for several days. And, of course, it's left her with many physical and emotional scars. She's really a wreck of a human being. But she she figures she can avoid most human contact if she works for herself and by herself so she becomes a house cleaner and and she drifts from place to place she ends up in a little town called shakespeare arkansas
0: and where she solves mysteries
1: where she solves mysteries unwillingly grudgingly
0: one of the things that that strikes me when i was reading this latest book of yours is that it, it, they're funny and a kind of there's a kind of romantic comedy yeah. they, they remind me of like it's like a Meg Ryan movie where occasionally somebody will be beheaded and <laughs> and, and there's just this head goes flying across the, the season that's
1: a really good analogy <laughs> because they are I mean they are they are a romantic comedy uh who's gonna get the girl but then you know there'll be a, a spray of arterial blood on the wall as as you pointed out
0: tell us a little bit about Plotting these books, you you come from a cozy mystery background as a writer.
1: Yes, and you have to plot very tightly, and that's. I was kind of rebelling against that when I started the Sookie books. So when I really when I sit down to write one, I really have no idea what I'm going to do. I just take it day by day. Uh, Now this last book, I did think, oh, I've got lots of open ends now that I've written seven books Mm -hmm. in the series. I thought uh, I need to start tying up some of this stuff. And when I wrote a list of, of plot points that I had not concluded, I came up with 20.
0: Oh, my God. <laughs> and I thought,
1: okay, okay, enough fun. Time to start tying up some of this stuff.
0: It, when you write a series like this, do you consider, as you write each book, do you consider the series somewhere out there as a separate kind of large book in and of itself, and of which these are? Presumably only chapters?
1: Yes, that's very much better than I could have put it, actually. Um, I do. Uh, I was getting so many characters and so much detail and so much potential to make mistakes that I've actually hired someone to do a Bible of the whole series. So when I need someone, maybe I can flip through and reuse them. Or if somebody's dead, I'll know not to use them unless they're a vampire. And... uh, if somebody has brown eyes, I won't say they have blue eyes, because people read, this with tre- read these with tremendous attention, and they don't just read them once. They read them several times, and they email me if they find mistakes. And I'm so grateful. Please keep those emails coming.
0: When you're, when you're plotting these books, you're writing vampire novels, and that offers you some different plotting possibilities, it does. Tell us a little bit about some of those possibilities.
1: Well, of course, vampires are extremely strong, and some of them can fly. That's a, a plot element you don't usually find in a cozy mystery.
0: No, a flight of, of uh, constituencies, <laughs> characters, <laughs> unless they're falling out a second-story window.
1: That's right. Also, they can't go out during the day, which I kept as a necessary break. Since they're so powerful, you've just got to have a system of checks and balances, or everyone would annihilate them, I think.
0: I would imagine so, yeah. Any
1: reasonable person.
0: It. One thing that that's—this book, it, more than your other books, and more than almost any other vampire novel I've ever read, is really topical. I mean— This is set in a post Katrina world. It is. It's set in a post 9 11 world. Mm -hmm. And there's big, there's scenes in here that speak to both of those events. Yes. And I'm wondering, when did you decide that you had to deal with Katrina? When when it happened? I mean, this must be like a a big problem for you. You're sitting here, you've got a nice series of vampire books going, and all of a sudden, the city (laughs) in which they're set is annihilated.
1: Well, at least. not Sookie's world. Uh, Sookie's world wasn't directly affected by Katrina because she lives in the northern part of Louisiana. But of course, a lot of the vampires in the books were deeply affected by Katrina, and there was just no way I could ignore it. Uh, That would be a disservice and a dishonor to the people of New Orleans who have suffered so much. And I just, I had to incorporate it, but I didn't choose to deal with it directly in the books it it falls between two of the books so in one book uh everything's going fine and in the next book we're dealing with the disastrous consequences
0: and and tell us how you use some of those consequences to drive the plot in this book
1: well the queen is in a terrible position the queen of louisiana excuse me the vampire queen of louisiana who was headquartered in new orleans is in a terrible financial position after Katrina. A lot of her assets have been washed away. She doesn't know when they'll be restored, and a lot of her prestige has gone down as a result from being the queen of one of the greatest vampire states in the United States. She's become pretty much a lame duck, and also her king is dead. The king of Arkansas, whom she had just wed, is dead, and uh, she's suspected of his death, and quite rightly, She is suspected of his death because, actually, her henchman killed him. So she goes to this summit that the book deals with in a very bad position, very precarious, liable to go to trial.
0: One thing that I really liked about this book was the the convention setting we all love a good convention <laughs> setting it's always good for a lot of humor
1: dealers booths dealers' <laughs> booths.
0: <laughs> tell us about some of the dealers booths they encounter
1: oh there that was a lot of fun and i just couldn't ignore it it was one of those byways that you just can't pass by well of course the vampire bill is selling his database uh there are all kinds of other booths that are selling services to vampires that are a little unusual and uh I just, I had a great time with that. I really did. And,
0: and there's somebody selling a self-help book even.
1: A self-help book for vampires. And
0: tell us that title of that book.
1: You know, I don't remember.
0: Sanguinary Soup for the Soul. Sanguinary
1: Soup for the Soul. My daughter loved those chicken soup books. I thought, oh, the vampires have got to have one. They've got to have their own.
0: Uh, w- These books are, are firmly set in the South. Yes. South Southern Gothic hangs heavy over these books, kind oh. of. I mean, it can't help but doing that. I I was thinking today, I had a, a horrific thought today. I thought, you know, if William Faulkner and Flannery O'Connor were alive today, they'd probably be writing vampire novels.
1: You know, that's not uh, not so entirely off base.
0: No, no, it, it didn't seem mixed. Not at all. And, and so I'm wondering, what kind of... Uh, One of the things, the South certainly offers you some opportunities for for humor, Mm -hmm. and and it's grim humor. Tell us a little bit about some of the grim humor you get out of the South.
1: Well, the South has always been uh, kind of a magical realism place to start with. I grew up in the South. I grew up in the Delta part of Mississippi, and... uh, you know you don't lock your crazy relatives away you put them out on the front porch and have company over so they can talk to them it's and it's always been very rich in ghost stories the south is just you know saturated with ghost stories so it seemed to me that that was a good a good thing to draw into the books i really can't do a book from a northern perspective
0: i that i your voice makes that Abundantly clear, (laughs) Abundantly clear. One of the things I liked was there's a a point in the book where you say, Arkansas Louisiana and Mississippi were three poor states huddled together by our mutual mortification. (laughs) We were all grateful for each other because we got to take turns at being at the bottom of every list in the United States. Poverty level, teen pregnancy, cancer death illiteracy, we pretty much rotated the honors.
1: That is so true. When I was uh, growing up, whenever there would be uh, an educational brew like who scored lowest on the national tests uh we in Mississippi were always so glad for arkansas because sometimes they would be lower and likewise uh in other situations like teen pregnancy arkansas could could say oh thank god for mississippi you know because they have a higher teen pregnancy rate is it, is we that's really true we take turns
0: when you're writing genre fiction with these supernatural elements that you have, you have to create a, a, a mythos, you know, a, series, a background, kind of a supernatural background, a pantheon of mm-hmm. gods and goddesses, and or so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, and tell us a little bit about how you've gone about creating the backdrop for these books, the supernatural backdrop, because it keeps getting bigger and bigger. I mean, this time we've got the, uh, who are the warriors who,
1: Oh, Clavash and uh, Batania.
0: Yes, yes. And they're yet another addition to the pantheon, aren't they?
1: Well, they're a tip of the hat to my desire to write books about women with big, whacking swords who kill people. I was really drawn to that. And I just thought, where can I bring them in? Where can I bring them in? And I thought, well, if that came from another dimension, that would be cool. So hence uh, Batania. And I think, I'm hoping that someday I get to write a novella about them, because they were just a lot of fun to write. They've got armor. They've got swords. They've got guns. They've got everything.
0: They're kind of the the the, the girly version uh, of uh, Conan.
1: They are. They are. And, you know, heck, they're lots of fun to write. So I've had a lot of fun with the supernatural elements. Uh, the witches, the Wiccans, which are not the same thing, the wares throw in a shapeshifter or two. It's just very rich and very fun.
0: You've hinted a little bit that some of the, uh, that the vampires are, one of the popular ways to do vampires these days is it's a, a virus of some kind or, you know, a parasite or some kind of host type thing. They're science fiction. And, and you indicated that you yourself were interested in writing science fiction.
1: Uh Yes, but in my books, vampirism is not a virus, though the vampires like to tell everyone it is because that makes them more understandable and possibly sympathetic. I mean, after all, how can you help it if you catch a virus? But actually, vampirism is magic, and magic is a terrifying and crazy and unknowable element in the world.
0: And that gets a doesn't get a good uh, reaction from, from the religious segments.
1: No, it really doesn't. I'm a Christian myself, and uh, an Episcopalian, and I see the church being ripped by so many issues that I think should be easily resolved by people of goodwill and reason. I thought, let's really give them something to think about. Let's give them vampires to think about. (laughs) Maybe that'll unite them.
0: (laughs) When you write these kind of uh, books... You also bring in some many political points, and one of the things I really liked, one of the innovations I really liked here is it's the fellowship,
1: the fellowship of the sun,
0: fellowship of the sun, the militias. I always found the militias to be a fairly frightening force in this world.
1: I think they are, and and I think that they're they're the backlash. Of course, they're analogous to the Ku Klux Klan, but they bring in whole families. They they say that they're a fraternal organization or a social organization. Actually, they're a church, uh, a church that preaches hatred and intolerance.
0: And we find many analogs in our world now, don't we? I
1: think we do. Uh, I think we do. And I think that if if my world were, as I have written it, that we would have a fellowship of the Sun. It would be called something different, but it would be equivalent
0: and let's talk a little bit about your agenda w- with regards to how humor hel- helps moderate this that s- some of the the in that when you're writing books that that want to like force us to look at how intolerant we are that forcing us to laugh at ourselves really gets gets us Away from that intolerance.
1: I tell you what, nothing makes me flip off a a TV show faster than the basic premise that we are bad. Bad, 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 bad. We're the worst thing that ever walked the face of the earth, and quite possibly the animals should rise up and annihilate us. Uh, That, I'm just tired of hearing about how bad we are, especially in a grim, pedantic kind of way. I think if I can point out we have some problems and do it with humor that I think more people will listen and possibly agree. I hate to shake my finger at people.
0: These these books are also i firmly in a genre that's I think disparagingly called chicklet.
1: Oh, I don't think so. Well, I agree that chicklet is disparaging, but I don't agree that these are really chicklet.
0: I know you have some, I, I enjoy them, but I I'm wondering when you're marketing these books, when when mm-hmm. uh, and, and writing them, do you do you think about your audience
1: more so since I have such a a vocal readership who uh, you know I have a website where I answer questions and that that's really mushroomed into uh, kind of a bewildering. Uh, melange of stuff they they not only ask me questions they they point out things to me and they they have long discussions among themselves about what I could possibly mean by some turn in the books and I find them thinking I'm much deeper than I actually am uh, but I do have, I do want to have fun with the books and I think that Sookie's romantic life is the subject of a lot of fun because she didn't date all during high school and now that she's in her mid-20s she's facing dating for the first time i think dating is crazy anyway so i'm i'm trying to to look at it from her point of view
0: well you offer her more complications than the average 20-something girl that vampires were tigers yeah
1: yeah i do uh but i think that's a lot of fun too Jim Butcher said, I did more mean things to Sookie than, than he was comfortable with. He said, you are just awful to her. And I agree, I am. I'm terrible to her. But she can take it, by golly.
0: One of the things I loved about this book was there's a, a point in here where there's a vampire Kodak moment. And it's so disturbing and strange. And Suki describes it as such. It's so disturbing and strange on so many levels, but it's also very funny because it is a Kodak moment. This is where uh, Suki has twigged to the idea that maybe Sophie, who's a queen, should marry Mary uh, Andre, Andre. And, but it's so bizarre because Andre is her child, in he it's is. her vampire child, and you've got these two dead children, siblings, mother marrying child vampire. It's just and they so both look wrong. like they're sixteen years old. It's so wrong on so many levels.
1: It's so wrong, but it's so right. You know, Sookie saw her way to their hearts, even though they were vampires, and and she's very direct. She's you know. She doesn't enjoy all the vampire politics. She just said, "You love him. He loves you. Do it." Uh, But of course, that's not going to happen. No. No, because the world is too complicated for that to happen.
0: You like some. You like slapstick humor too.
1: I do. I do.
0: (laughs) And and there's a delightful scene. Uh, Again, this is something that you. You know, it strikes me that this is something you do fairly often in these books. Is I guess the effect is dissonance, uh, where you combine things that are just you think There's, these things should not these these two do not belong together, Grover. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in this case, we've got a, a, a kind of a mini nine eleven like incident. Yeah, and, and it's and it's very scary. I mean, vampires not so scary. 9/11 incidents, very, very
1: scary, scary. very scary indeed.
0: And, and you you put us inside the building, and, and then at, at, when things are are at their absolute worst, we get a wily e. coyote moment <laughs> when they go plunging, plunging,
1: sir. plunging <laughs> down the glass. Uh, I you know I consulted with a couple of people about that, and they said it was possible, uh, and it just it just seemed like one of those weird moments you get in the middle of tension uh where they out they go out they go down the building in this amazing rush and she's had such a terrible time getting them getting them awake enough to get out of the building and Pam's in the coffin and Eric's Eric's trying to hold it up with his strength so they won't crash but and there they go down the side of the building and then they do crash it's just it's just one of those It was a lot of fun to write. (laughs) I've got to confess, it was a lot of fun to write.
0: What makes you go for these really bizarre moments of combining, like, really opposite emotions?
1: I'm just perverse by nature, I guess. Uh, It just seemed like it would be uh, a great moment to write. That was how I saw it happening in my head. Uh, Because, after all, the building's a pyramid, and pyramids are meant to be slid down, no matter what you say. And I just, it just all seemed to work together. They had to go out the side, and they had to toboggan down on a coffin. It just seemed inevitable. <laughs>
0: I, I I guess so, but <laughs> it, it's it's not it's, to you, huh? <laughs> no, no, no. It's it was it, it was perfect. But it's so, uh, it's a combination. I say of things you really expect and things you really don't expect, which makes your books uh, con- Continuously delightful.
1: Well, gosh, thank you.
0: Now, we've discovered that uh, Suki is maybe not, though she's a telepath, we've discovered some interesting thing about Sookie. There's only two telepaths in, that we know of in these that books. That we know of. And, and that's, an inter- that's very interesting in and of itself. And when you decided to make this so... Do you have some do you know what's happening out there in the next couple chapters of the books? No.
1: No, no idea.
0: No idea. No idea.
1: Uh very little idea actually, though I'm a, about 150 pages, well I wrote a few more pages in my hotel room before I came over here. So I'm probably about 150 pages into the into the next one. So, um and Barry is not in the next one. He'll probably be in the book after that. Bury the Bell
0: Boy. Right, right. Now, he he's the other telepath. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you are creating these uh, books, I, apparently you're doing it just completely by the seat of your pants?
1: Uh, yes, actually I am, and that's kind of scary. Uh,
0: but uh, does that help you get the humor going?
1: It does. It really primes the pump for me. Uh, I would love it if I outlined, I, I often use the analogy that outlining is like painting by numbers. Uh, it's much easier, and the product is very pretty, but it's not as much fun to do. So that I don't outline, and I, I just kind of go at it full tilt and see what happens. Of course, that means I have to do a lot of revising.
0: We learn of late that these books are about to be adapted into a TV series.
1: Yes. Isn't that neat?
0: Tell us a little bit about that. When did this happen? How did it happen? And I think it sounds delightful.
1: Well, I'm, I'm very excited now that it looks like it's really going to happen. This, I think it began like, oh, maybe almost two years ago, around that. Uh, the option that another guy had on the books was about to expire. And there I ended up having three offers on the table. They were all good offers, but Alan Ball is such a tremendous talent. He wrote me this wonderful letter uh that let me know he understood what I was doing with the books and that he really liked the blend of humor and horror and pathos and funniness. And of course, after I thought about it, I just had to go with him. And he's you know, he's gonna develop this series for HBO. I've read the first two scripts, and they're just wonderful.
0: Now, is he following the books exactly, or is he just working your story? Is he taking your stories, or is he just working in the world, or kind of a combination of both?
1: Uh, the The first episodes I saw were Chapter 1, Scene 1. Wow. Yeah. Boy, uh, that
0: must be exciting.
1: Well, it really is. Of course, he tell has to telescope things. This is going to be his own art form. Sure. Not mine. Sure. I mean, now he's...
0: Alan Ball's noted for Six Feet Under, mm-hmm. which had a similar combination of of humor and pathos.
1: Yeah. So I knew he could. You know, I knew he was certainly capable of doing it beautifully.
0: Uh, I'm wondering, do we know who's going to star in it?
1: We do. We do. We do. Oh, yeah. who's going to play Sookie? Okay, Anna Paquin is going to play Sookie.
0: Wow, what do you think about that? <laughs> that's perfect. That, that, that is, that's that's, that's totally picture neat. perfect.
1: Yeah, it, that's very neat. Stephen Moyer is going to play Bill. He's a British actor. There are a few others that I know. Uh, uh, a lovely actress named Brooke Carr is going to be Tara. Okay. Sam Trammell is going to be Sam, and a guy named Ryan. And I never can remember his last name, but he he's a uh, I think from New Zealand, and he was in Flicka. Is going to play Jason. So as far as I know, they're going to start shooting June 1st.
0: Wow, that's exciting.
1: I'm having lunch with Alan tomorrow, and I should know more then.
0: Oh, really? Well, Mm -hmm. great. Um, When you started these, did you ever think that they might be makeable into movies?
1: No, I never think about that. I really don't, because that's the way to ruin an experience for yourself is trying to... uh, market it at the same time you're writing it i never think about it
0: so you just go forth into the darkness from the darkness
1: Mm-hmm. i do uh i just i don't like to think about trying to tailor things i think if I, if i thought about the movie experience or the tv experience i might lead myself to write it a different way and i would hate that
0: well, we like the we like the reading experience.
1: <laughs> we do.
0: That's the most important one. We've been speaking with Charlene Harris. Her new novel is All Together Dead. Thank you for joining me, Charlene.
1: Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun.
0: You're listening to Rick Kleffel the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony.